welcome to the filmpulse.net podcast. This is episode number 94. My name is Adam. Today with me we have Kevin. How are you, Kevin? Uh, all types of awful. What the heck? I just feel terrible. Nice. That sucks. Just feel terrible. That sucks. We'll, we'll, we'll get through this. We'll get through <laughs> it. We'll get through it together. Today we'll be kicking things off with an interview with Kathleen Hanna, singer of the legendary punk group Bikini Kill, and talk about the upcoming documentary The Punk Singer. Then we'll be going over some of what we've been watching before jumping into a feature review of The Hunger Games Catching Fire. And finally we'll be covering this week's movie predictions, new on video on demand and DVD and Blu-ray releases. First up, let's have a conversation with singer-songwriter, activist Kathleen Hanna, and talk about the upcoming film The Punk Singer. How did the idea of making this documentary come about? Was it your idea? Were you approached? Sydney approached me. Definitely was not my idea. Not something that at first <laughs> I was um, interested in doing. Were, were you hesitant to sign off on, on doing this? Because this film does kind of reveal a lot of aspects of your personal life. Yeah, I mean... I don't really care about that. I mean, I think part of the reason why it's important to me to show my personal life when I've typically been like, oh, don't talk to me about that. And part of it is like, I don't want to talk about my personal life because I'm a woman. And as a woman, people, as a woman in the public eye, somewhat in the public eye at least, um, there's a tendency for people to only ask you about your personal life. So you're really, I get really nervous. Oh, I don't want to open that Pandora's box. Because if I do, then everybody will be mm-hmm. like, all you are is the girl who wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit. All you are is married to Beastie Boy Adam Horowitz. And um, that hasn't happened. <laughs> um, in most of my interviews and stuff, it's been actually really amazing that I've opened up my personal life and people are still treating me like I'm an artist. Um, but I feel like it was important to do, to show me as a three-dimensional person who's fallible because, you know, uh, once you become kind of, you know, a certain age and I'm in a very niche kind of, you know, a feminist scene that isn't huge or whatever and people are like, you're a goddess or, you know, people either love me or hate me and that's totally fine. Um, and I'm sure some people are just completely mm-hmm. different, but the people who like say I'm a goddess, it like kind of hurts my feelings because I'm like, I'm not a goddess. I'm just like you. I'm like a person who's trying to navigate the themselves like through this kind of sexist landscape and um i feel like i wanted to open up about my life partially because i was sick of hearing that i was a goddess because i think that the film shows not well i think that that also kind of just speaks with your your influence and and the the music that you made was kind of groundbreaking for the time but i kind of want to talk about in the film like I mentioned, it does go into your personal life, but it also gets into a lot about the message that you brought to people through your music. And while the Riot Girl ethos can still be seen today in groups like Pussy Riot, it seems like bands in the U.S. like Bikini Kill or Bratmobile aren't as prevalent as they used to be. Do you find that to be the case, or do you think... The message is still there, just in other genres of music. Yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of great bands who are, like, doing really interesting stuff that, you know, relates back to what other female performers have done. I really love Priest. I really love Hot Fruit. I really love, you know, Grimes. 
lords, churches, like I love Janelle Monet, um, who's more of a pop star than I am, but um, her interviews are always great, mm-hmm. and her music is like completely confusing and confounding um, and awesome. So I think there's a lot of great stuff happening. So I don't really think, oh, there needs to be a Bikini Kill Part 2. Like, um, I think there's definitely feminism afoot. I think we all feel it. Um, and we all know that women are fighting are fighting back in Texas and um, in other places that mm-hmm. our rights are being eroded. You know, this Tea Party stuff has got to stop. Yeah, I, I agree. I watched uh, that whole Texas thing. They were streaming it live online. I watched the entire thing. It was just fascinating to, to see that unfold. So I grew up in the 90s punk scene, and I think it's interesting how the scene kind of evolved. As the scene evolved, your your music made a transition as well after the end of Bikini Kill, and you moved into uh, slightly, I would, I would say maybe slightly more upbeat music. But did the changing climate of the punk scene during this time influence you to move away from like the more aggressive style that made up Bikini Kill or is that just kind of where you were in your personal life? That's a great question. I mean, it's kind of twofold. The first part is that like my voice was getting trashed. The way I was singing in Bikini Kill Mm -hmm. every night, like every song totally full on, barely any space for bus. I mean, the way I wrote songs in that band was um, for the first couple records really stupid. Like, there's just too much of me. <laughs> like, like take a break, okay? <laughs> like, we could have a musical break at some point in this song and not hear your voice. Um, but, so, because I didn't write a lot of spaces into uh, what I was doing, I-, I was singing athletically a lot, of a lot, and um, I was trashing my voice, and so I wanted to learn different ways to sing so that... Um, I could survive out on the road and not keep losing my voice and damaging myself. And then the other thing is, you know, when you charge $5 for shows and you play punk punk shows, as opposed to charging $12 and having a dance show like a Le Tigre show, you know, there wasn't violence. I, I did have a glass of wine thrown at my head once, but I saw it coming and I moved. Um, but other than that, like, there wasn't a lot of the violence at the Kikra shows. It was like a love, fucking love fest. So that's mm, another mm-hmm. reason why I moved into more dancey, you know, upbeat music is because I was sick of the violence. I was sick of, you know, worrying if someone was going to shoot me. Like, it, it just really was yeah. ratcheting up for my band to the point where, you know, despite all the internal difficulties that we had as people and all that stuff, I just don't know if I could have continued um, on with how much, um, you know, violence had been put towards me. It, was, it just started getting really scary. Yeah, and I think that that did kind of come to a head during that time when, like, hardcore was on the rise, and it was just, it, it would just get crazy at some of those shows. Yeah, no, and I mean, like I think Toby said in the movie, it's like we played bowling alleys with no security, and there are all these guys who were like, mm-hmm. who totally hated us. <laughs> so it was like, and what's funny is that now, you know, and, and it, it's a lot of journalists too who are saying like, oh, I was at those shows and I would always stand in the back because, you know, the girls wanted to stand up front and watch you guys play and you would say girls to the front or I knew that that was a bikini kill thing. Mm-hmm. And I never met all the cool boys because they were in the back of the room. All I heard were, was the guys, you know, saying just shut up and play. And so it's been interesting as someone who's 45 
to have people, you know, these guys come up to me and be like, I always supported what you did. I thought it was really cool because I didn't realize how much male support was out there for our band. And um, I think that's great. Speaking of male support, in, in recent years, I've heard other bands doing covers of your some of your songs, some of Bikini Kill's songs, and some of them have had male vocalists. I was wondering what your thoughts were on having a man do a cover of a Bikini Kill song. Does that seem like a weird concept to you? or is I mean, is if cool? it's a gay man, um, I think it would make a little <laughs> bit more sense than if it was a straight man. But, I mean... Whatever, people can do whatever they want. I haven't really heard any. I mean, I'm interested to know what song. <laughs> I haven't, you know, yeah. I don't know. I haven't done that particular internet search. But, I mean, if it was a cer- if it was certain songs and it, if it was a really crappy boy band, I could probably, you know, reach inside myself deeply and get mad about it. But there's just too many more important things in the world. Like, we were just talking about this one in Texas. Like, I don't really care what mm-hmm. some dudes do on YouTube. <laughs> so in the the film alludes to the fact that your illness was something of a mystery to people. Was was this something that you were pers- like purposely keeping to yourself and and if so why why was that? Well, I didn't tell my wider circle of friends for a really long time. I think my mm-hmm. you know, my kind of core group of friends and my bandmates like knew something was wrong but they didn't know what it was and I think that's reflected in the film. And that really is the way it happened. Um, but I also didn't know what was wrong, so it was really hard to tell people. You know, besides right. my bandmates, like my current bandmates in the Julie Ruin, I was we were writing the record, and I still didn't have a diagnosis, and I was constantly going to specialists and coming in with a different diagnosis every day, you know, every week, saying, oh, somebody mm-hmm. told me I had Crohn's disease. Oh, somebody told me I had degenerative arthritis or, like, whatever. It wasn't a conscious decision not to tell anybody it wasn't it's not like I'm you know I'm trying to think of I'm not Miley Cyrus and everybody's not banging down my door to find out every last thing that's going on with me you know what I mean it's like I told yeah I told my friends at my birthday when I had a a birthday cake shaped like a tick and when I cut into it like (laughs) fake blood spurted everywhere and um that's how my friends found out they asked why I had a cake and I told everybody I had Lyme disease and um it was a really bad idea because then I spent my birthday talking about Lyme disease. <laughs> Happy birthday to me! <laughs> that sounds like an amazing idea to me. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned Miley Cyrus because my final question happens to be about Miley Cyrus. I read an article recently that quoted her as saying, "I'm one of the biggest feminists," and I was wondering if you could just comment on that. I just, you know, when the word feminist gets brought up by somebody who everybody's watching, it means that people are going on the internet and they're typing in what it does feminism mean. And (laughs) that makes me happy because I think about, you know, if I was nine years old and I was a Miley Cyrus fan, um, I am actually a Miley Cyrus fan of two songs. I really like Party in the USA and I really like The Climb. Um, and my friend actually did a whole show based on Miley Cyrus. He's a performance artist named Neil Medlin. Um, so I really, he should be the one asking or being asked this question. But, um, you know, I just imagine being nine years old and loving those songs or loving Hannah Montana and being like, whoa, what's feminism? And then ending up, you know, reading something about, you know, domestic violence and being like, that happens in other people's houses because that's happening in my house. I can get help for that. 
there's going to be at least one person that that happens for because she used that word. So whether I like her, her other art or not, or whether I agree with every artistic decision she makes is beyond the point. I think the fact that she said that word and has such a large platform um, is is only going to do good. And I'm not the feminist police, so I, I can't say if she's a feminist or not because that's up to her. One quick thing, is the Julie Ruin touring right now? Are they doing shows? Yeah, well, we're just playing in Miami on December 6th, and then we're going to Australia in January. And then in starting in April, we're going to be touring, like, the States and Europe all through spring and summer. So, yes, we will be touring in the spring and summer. We, we don't want to tour too much in the winter because it's holidays and it's freezing. Right. And, all right, well, thank you very much crazy. for taking some time to talk with me. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks again, Kathleen. The Punk Singer is hitting theaters in limited release November 29th. So check check that out if it's playing in your area. Let's talk about some of what we've been watching. I'll kick it off this week. Still, oh, what do you got? I saw a bunch of docs this week. Oh, that sounds like the worst week ever. <laughs> Actually, they were, all, they were all fairly decent. I started it with Dear Mr. Waterson, the Calvin and Hobbes documentary. Ooh. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, my review, I did write a review for this. It's up on the examiner. The Okay, so I, first of all, let me just say I liked it. I did have some big problems with it, though. Yeah, okay. right. Mostly because the the director, he injects himself into the movie way too much. Like Oh, I love when that happens. So it's part of it is looking at the history of Calvin and Hobbes, and the impact of Calvin and Hobbes and talking to other cartoonists that were influenced by Calvin and Hobbes and all that stuff is really interesting. But mm-hmm. there's this kind of side thing that they will cut back to every now and then where the director, Joel Schroeder, kind of goes on this own little journey where he goes back to his childhood home and looks at the walls where he would post up the the strips that he would cut out of the paper. And then he goes to Bill Watterson's hometown and kind of explores around there. And then he goes to this archive where he finds the original prints of uh, Calvin and Hobbes and looks at those. And it's all just really boring. And you're just like, I'm sorry, but we just don't care about this dude's journey. Like, I don't know him and it's not that interesting. I would rather just, watch a straight-up talking head documentary about the history and the impact of Calvin and Hobbes. Like, that's that's all I want. It sounds, like, self-absorbed. It is. He's just like, I have to show you my journey. Yeah, it is. How much I loved Calvin and Hobbes. So you give a shit. It almost feels like... Everyone loves Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, exactly. And it, it just kind of feels like filler, but... That stuff aside, it is really interesting. They do get into some things that I never really thought about. Like when they talk about layout and pay, like how much space you have on a page and how he was limited in what he could put on the page and things like that, which I found to be really interesting. They also talk about merchandising. And how the fact that he refused to ever sign off on any kind of merchandising for Calvin and Hobbes. Like, there to this day, there is no 
licensed yeah. Calvin and Hobbes merchandise. <clears throat> Which, thank God. Right, exactly. And and they actually talked about how there's there's kind of two ways of looking at that. There's there's the good, which is it it doesn't saturate. You're not completely saturating the market with Calvin and Hobbes stuff. It kind of keeps it a mystery almost. Yeah, yeah, it keeps it it keeps it special. Yeah, it does. And but it, on the other hand, you know what what would have been the harm in licensing a Hobbes plush toy? You know, for little kids. Like I'm not sure that there'd be any harm in that. But so that's that's interesting and. There's just just teach your kids to make their own. Just make your own hops plush toy. Uh, and that's what people did. Hence the, that's hence the, hence the stickers of Calvin pissing on oh, different fuck. items. God. <laughs> and they do talk about that. <laughs> that is just, uh. But overall, it's a very lighthearted film. It made me think about how much I used to love, well, still love Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is the greatest thing that ever happened. And it, it just made me feel very nostalgic. And I, I remember it, uh, I forget what house it was, but my mom let me draw on my walls. So I just covered my walls in Calvin and Hobbes. Nice. It just drew Calvin and Hobbes all over my wall. It was awesome. Yeah, and they do they do talk to a lot of people that that uh, they they talk to other comic strip artists, but they also talk to just fans and stuff. So that was that was interesting. Well, now I feel bad because they didn't talk to me. I guess you just weren't a big enough fan. That hurts. Yeah, and they also they also get into the the concept of high art versus low art. Because this is something that like Bill Watterson was always kind of battling against because I guess he was kind of offended because comic strip artists are never regarded the same as artists that are featured in galleries and that type of thing. Yeah. Which is shouldn't be. That shouldn't be the case. And it I mean, what what defines low art versus high art? And they they talk about how it's due to the medium you know the fact that their their art is made readily available in a newspaper that somehow relegates it down to low art yeah because it sort of like diminishes it but when you look at and when you look at calvin and Hobbes, you're just like how can this not be considered you know high art because some of the strips that you see you're just like holy shit there's just so much there's there's so many layers and so much depth and it's it's interesting because a lot of those strips I haven't seen since I was a little kid so when they show them in the movie when you see them again as an adult you're just like holy crap because there's like all this subtext that you just miss oh, yeah. when that's, you're a kid that's the that's the number one thing about Calvin Hobbes that is so amazing is that like when I read it as a kid you just see it as you know a kid and his pet tiger right and it's amazing and it's awesome. And then when you go back and read them now, there's all this stuff in there that you didn't realize when you were a kid because you just you didn't have the the mental fortitude to understand what was going on, all the subtext and the the topics that he discusses and everything. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's like it completely changes. Yeah, and you can enjoy it both ways. It's oh my god, I just want to read Calvin and Hobbes now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fuck. It's funny because after this, they have a box set. That's the complete Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, I want I want that. And one I was like thing. looking at it on Amazon. I'm like, all right, 
this this is gonna happen. I didn't know, I, know. Hard, but I still I still because I have all the the single ones, mm-hmm. you know, from over the years. Because like that was like my family's thing. Like my dad, Calvin and Hobbes, is like the greatest thing ever to him and my grandpa. So we have like all the books, but I do want to get that box set. Yeah, I want the box. I have a few of the books still. I don't have all of them. Um, my family was more of a Gary Larson. I do remember. Yeah, <laughs> we we had Gary Larson books everywhere, but. Uh, also, your dad was into the what, the, what was the one called? Oh, damn it. Now I can't remember. He was into Groening. early Matt Groening, too. Yeah. What, what was what was the one? Um, Something. He he- a, it was like something hell, right? Yeah. Damn it. Because I remember reading those. They were awesome. Yeah, we have. Yeah, I still have all the early Matt Groening stuff. Uh, But anyway, if. If you're a fan of Calvin and Hobbes, which I'm sure anybody listening is, because if every, you're not, you're the devil. Yeah, I don't know you're anybody yeah, <laughs> anybody that doesn't like Calvin and Hobbes. I would recommend checking it out. It is it is a very <clears> nostalgic <throat> movie, and they even talk about the Scholastic Book Club. Yes, <laughs> going picking up the. That's where I got my first Calvin and Hobbes book. Was at the Scholastic Book Fair when it came to our our school. So. Yeah. The book fair was the greatest thing ever. Oh my god, I loved it. I loved life, it. It's called Life in Hell. Life in Hell. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there we go. So yeah, I light recommend for me. The next movie I saw was called Necessary Evil, Super Villains of DC Comics. And this is just exactly what the title says. It's a documentary about the the art of the villain in DC Comics. So it kind of gets into the psychology of the villain, what makes a villain, the dynamic between a hero and a villain, and how all heroes need a villain, and mm-hmm. all villains need a hero, and sort of, they, they go over specific villains, a lot of them, actually, and they talk about like what makes this person a supervillain, what, what makes them tick, the interesting aspects about each villain, and it's all very cool, but... Near the end, as the film progresses, you start, at least I started to feel like, uh, this is kind of just an advertisement for DC Comics. (laughs) And by the end, they're like, oh, we got big things coming up in DC. And then they started talking about the upcoming things that they have planned. Which doesn't seem to fit into what the film's about. And, And it just made me think, like, what is this? Like, this is just a big, giant advertisement for DC Comics. Like they started showing clips of the Batman Arkham Origins video game. They they were showing yeah. clips of the movies and it just it all felt very kind of like marketing. Like it's all big marketing ploy. And maybe yeah, that's it sounds just sounds terrible. Maybe that's just me kind no, of No, it's not. I, no, it sounds exactly like a marketing ploy cuz they're trying to, you know, they got to do something. Marvel's killing them. It's true. Um but the beginning, I mean, like the first three quarters of the movie was actually pretty interesting. They get they talk to a lot of interesting people like Jim Lee, Zack Snyder, Guillermo del Toro, a lot of big big name people in the comic book world like Jeff Johns. But you know, it, it's it's tough because it's a tough recommend because of this this whole kind of advertising thing that they do towards the end. It, at least that's the way it felt. To me, I don't. I haven't read any other reviews, 
but it felt like it shouldn't be a standalone movie, that this should be a special feature on a Blu-ray. Yeah, it does it does sound like a special feature. I mean it's a full length it's full length, but it still felt like something that should be a special feature. So that that's a tough recommend. I mean if you're really into the DC villains, which I, I will agree that they do have the best villains. They their villains are better than Marvel's, but yeah. it's still a tough one to, to actually recommend. Doesn't sound fun at all. No. Sounds like work. <laughs> Sounds like a homework assignment. They they do say some they do get into some interesting ideas and stuff, but most of it is stuff that you already know, you know. Yeah. Uh then yeah. I saw The Punk Singer, which is a documentary about the uh life of Kathleen Hanna, who we just heard. I really enjoyed this. Like I, I didn't know a whole lot about Bikini Kill. I mean I've heard their music obviously but i just i never really knew the the whole backstory and stuff and so it was pretty interesting to to see i like rock docs so i was pretty much enjoying this the whole way through i don't have a whole lot else to say about it i would say if you are a fan of anything that kathleen han is involved in be it bikini kill or la tigre or the julie ruin or any of the other projects that she's been involved with I'd say check it out. It's it's solid. I think we'll have a re- full review for that later yeah. this week. Have you? Were you a fan of Bikini Kill? Eh, it's, I'm not really a huge fan. I like some stuff, but it just didn't affect me greatly. Gotcha. It's just you know, like I listened to it, I'm like, oh, this isn't too bad. Gotcha. So I am not going to see this. Uh, you do get to see a lot of um, a lot of footage with Ad Rock from Beastie Boys, who is her husband. Yeah, he's in it a lot. They do show some. A lot of it's just kind of like archive footage and, and stuff like that. But they do jump to now and do some more like cinema verite style stuff. Not a whole lot though. A lot of yeah. it's a lot of it's just like archive footage and interviews. They they interview a lot of people like uh, Joan Jett and. Um, What's her name from Portlandia? Carrie. Carrie Brownstein? Yeah. Interview her and a bunch of other people from, from bands. It's worth a watch. Worth a watch. Uh, then I saw a movie called Cut to Black, which was submitted to us uh, a while back. But we are a little little back-ordered right now. A little behind? Yeah. We got like a stockpile to get through. So I'm just getting to it now, but... I actually like this quite a bit. This is a a black and white neo-noir film about a disgraced cop who is, he's dying. I think he has cancer. I don't know if they ever directly say what he has, but he is dying and he agrees to do this one last job that involves catching a stalker for a councilman and it kind of evolves into this very intricate, complex twisted um like conspiracy involving murder and and it's it's actually quite good like i was i was really surprised this is a like a micro budget film shot on black and white looks really good acting is not great but the dialogue the script i was so impressed by the script in this movie like it's smart it's really snappy and it feels like 
like a genuine noir. Yeah. So I I recommend checking this one out. Just don't expect a lot. Like don't go into it thinking that it's gonna be LA Confidential or something like that. Yeah. Because it is a micro budget film, so yeah. it does have unfortunately some of those pitfalls. But I still think it's worth Lower checking your expectations. Out. Yeah, I have a full review for that up on the site too. Then I saw Ms. 45, which was my Grindhouse Weekly pick. <laughs> yeah, I picked this in, because Drafthouse Films is actually re-releasing this. They acquired the rights to this, and they're going to be putting it back out in theaters December 18th, I believe. Which, the poster for it's awesome as shit. Yeah. Uh, this is directed by Abel Ferrara. This is his second film. We I did talk about his first film, Driller Killer. <laughs> that's right did, driller killer did talk about that previously this is a rape revenge film about a, a mute seamstress who is brutalized not once but twice so she's going home from work and a guy pops out of an alley and grabs her it's actually the guy is played by Abel Ferrara rapes her in an alley then she goes home Someone breaks into her house, holds her up at gunpoint, rapes her again. And that is a she terrible day. Yeah. And she basically decides to she's fed up and she pretty much just kills every man she sees <laughs> after that. Which Good for her. Which is kind of interesting because it's like it's not like I mean, clearly this is a riff off of Taxi Driver. It's like a female version of Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. But the difference is she just kills people for no reason. Like, there's a scene where there's a boyfriend and girlfriend and they're kissing each other out on the street and they they leave and she follows the guy and she is going to kill him just because he was kissing his girlfriend. So, like, she, she kills people for no reason. For no reason. What an asshole. Not only that, but... Either either she has the worst luck in the world or New York City in 1981 was the most dangerous place in the entire world. Because it's like every single time she goes outside, some dude's trying to rape her. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous. Like every man, every man in New York City is trying to attack her. And they're all sleazeballs. Oh, God. It's ridiculous. It's very violent. This is actually rated X. Is it better than 444 Last Day on Earth? Yeah, it's better than that. <laughs> it's way better uh, than that. Yeah, it doesn't take much. But Does see, it? I didn't I still didn't like this very mm-hmm. much. Like it's kind of a novelty watch. Like it's one of these it's similar I was going to say it sounds like it's fun for like a couple minutes and then you're like, "All right." Yeah, it, it's pretty ridiculous. It's just doesn't make any sense. Like, it's just so illogical. Like, this wouldn't happen in real life. Same with the Driller Killer. It's just so unbelievable and over the top. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention is the music in this is some of the worst music I've ever heard in a movie. It's It's this nonstop screeching saxophone that is... Oh, yeah. That sounds amazing. It's so awful. And it happens like... I don't know, 20 times throughout the movie. <laughs> That's entirely too awful. It's so awful. And there's a scene, there's a big finale at the end at a Halloween party, and they're playing the screeching saxophone, but they keep cutting to a guy playing the trumpet. 
like he's the one playing the music but it's clearly a saxophone and that guy is playing the trumpet and that really bothered me <laughs> oh that sounds that sounds terrible i haven't seen a lot of abel Ferrara's stuff but i do want to i feel like i want to watch some of his later stuff just to just to see like i've ne- i've actually never seen king of new york or the original bad lieutenant well, it's, I love King of New York. Yeah, it's see, I I haven't seen that, so I need to watch that just so I can say okay. He's, I just, I find him to be like you know he's either absolutely terrible or fantastic. And were there any I other? Know, ones? I don't know if I've ever seen a film like in between of his. I think I've only seen two, honestly. Well, I've seen three now with Driller Killer, Four Forty Four, and Ms. Forty Five, and I didn't like any of them. So I don't know. We'll we'll see. I I do want to see King of New York because that's on my list of shame. I rewatched Freddy vs Jason last night. This is the final the final one in my Nightmare on Elm Street marathon. I, took me a while just, to see this last one. I just uh, I have this image of you getting stuck in a K hole and like that's mm-hmm. all you watch for the rest of your life until you die. Just like every week, you can just come back and you're like, I watched. Nightmare on Elm Street 4. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you watched that like three weeks ago. Uh, yeah, well, It seems like this has been going on for like four months. Well, all that's left is for me to finish watching the Never Sleep oh, Again documentary. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. <laughs> well, okay, so I started watching Freddy vs. Jason a few weeks ago, and I didn't finish it because I just I don't like that movie at all. And I remembered how much I hated it. So it took me a while to want to finish it, but I did. And it's still bad. I still hate it. That's all I'll say about it. It's just not not even worth still, worth my Still hates it. Yeah. Uh that's that's all I got other than Hunger Games. Oh, Hunger Games. Well, I started the week out watching a Hungarian animated film called I have no idea how to pronounce this for her for her Lofia? Maybe. Sure. We'll go with Not it. Sure. <laughs> but holy shit, was this amazing. It's from uh, 1981 by uh, Marcel Jankovic. And just the animation style alone is enough to just watch this. It, and for whatever reason, it just automatically reminded me of Thundercats. I was just going to say, the, the image that I'm seeing here looks like Thundercats. Yeah, like it automatically reminded me of Thundercats, which then in turn made me turn into like a six-year-old and just love every single minute of it. It's just like a little kid again. It was fantastic. It's just, it's got um, sort of like a like a Hungarian folktale type story. You know, it's just like an adventure yarn. And it's great because on one level, if you just look at it, base like at the base level it's just a good time it's just a fun adventure folktale story and it's fantastic and the the all the colors the images everything's amazing and then on the other hand is there's so much symbolism and imagery and just everything that goes into it that gives it this depth that you can look into it deeper but it's great because it works on both of those levels so I just, I loved every single moment of it. And the crazy thing is just the the colors alone. Like, and everything's constantly moving and shifting. Mm -hmm. And just, like, 
I don't, it's just unbelievable. I've never seen animation like this before in my life. There's nothing like it. There's no other film to like compare it to. I can't, I don't know how to explain it to you. Dr. Cat? Dr. Cat, it doesn't <laughs> come close to Dr. Cat. I was just it's saying just, that because everything moves in Dr. Cat. <laughs> this, is, this is a different kind of movement. This isn't just like squiggly, cheap animation. <laughs> It's just, I mean, the colors, too. I'm almost sure he uses every single color ever. And the story is just a uh, tree shaker. He's born from a white horse, and he pops out as a horse and then turns into a man just out of nowhere. So that's bizarre. And he's told by a spirit in the forest that he's got to drink horse milk for seven years. That's how he gets strong. So he does that for seven years. And then he goes back to the spirit and he's like, yeah, do that again for another seven years. So then he goes back, drinks more horse milk, pretty much just sucks his mother dry. And she ends up dying after the 14 years of drinking horse milk. So he literally kills his mother. And here's and you know, his mother tells him this story, the underworld and these stupid women princesses opened up like the gates of hell. For, I mean, they, that was, they were told, don't open these gates because it's hell. Don't do that, please. And the first thing that they do is open the gates of hell and ruin everything. So Tree Shaker finds his two brothers, and I forget their name. One is like Iron Bender. I forget what the other guy's name is. Something with stone. And they go to the underworld. Well, the Tree Shaker goes because his brothers are fucking idiots and can't do anything. And Tree Shaker just does everything, essentially. He just goes to the underworld, fights three boss. It's like three boss battles. Which is awesome. The first one is like a... Well, the, the odd thing is they call them dragons. But they're not dragons at all. Like the first one's a is a, is a, is a golem. A three-headed golem. Mm. So I don't know how that's a dragon. The second one's a tank. Which I'm not sure how that's a dragon. And then the, the third one is like this 12-headed like shifting city. Which is odd. It's like a, it's like a skyscraper. It's very bizarre. But it's, it's pretty much just three boss battles, and they're awesome. And Tree Shaker's amazing. And the, one of the other best things about this is, number one, they don't like I said, they don't understand what dragons are. And number two, they have this really weird interpretation of wrestling. Like, they just decide to wrestle <laughs> to, to, like, settle the score or to figure out who's better. And their, their wrestling is they just stand facing each other. One guy picks the other one up and throws them into the ground. Just picks him up by like his hips and just throws him feet first into the ground, like straight down. And then the other guy will do it back, and it's whoever gets thrown into the ground the furthest. That's who wins. So apparently that's Hungarian wrestling. I'd like to see that in real life. Yes, I would love to see it in real life. I wonder if there's there's probably videos on YouTube, which is, now that I say that, that's exactly what I'm going to do as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> as soon as we're done and one of my favorite things too is the for whatever reason the three castles they're like they're always rotating and they're spinning around and he just he walks up to them and yells out castle stop rotating or i'll smash you (laughs) and then the castle stops (laughs) well i do i have to admit i saw this on youtube okay so and there wasn't subtitles you have to use the the closed caption right. uh youtube i was actually thing. yeah i was actually watching so, this while you were talking about it so 
I don't, you know, it could be just that the subtitles are completely off base and make it like add this level of humor to it that's not actually there in the first place. But whatever, it's awesome. It's just a, it's a great time. And like I said, the, the check it out for the animation. I, I mean, I don't, I really don't know what to compare it to to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. Like everything's on fire. Mm-hmm. Everything like looks flame-like it's just it's amazing it looks like a lot of watercolors it's just it, yeah it's unbelievable i've never seen animation like this and just to, you know and he he hand draws all of this marcel jankovitz he does all the work like the the movie his latest movie that came out in 2012 he's been working on it for 20 years so he's been animating it for 20 years Yikes. so it's just i mean the level that this guy is working on is something that you haven't seen before it's unbelievable highly recommended i actually this is a 10 out of 10 for me i just just i lost my shit followed it up with a movie called fill the void which is apparently the first movie made by a ultra orthodox jewish woman so it has that interesting factoid going for it the movie itself is meh number one it's gorgeous it's a gorgeous film to you know to look at and it's slightly interesting in the fact that i don't know anything about you know jewish traditions or their religion Mm -hmm. and this film is pretty much all about like arranged marriages and one of the early scenes is them like uh what's it called purim having like a purim celebration which purim sounds the way that they show it to you sounds awesome for everyone except for the guy that has to do purim because what they, what they do is they just sit at a table, and he has $3,000 on him. People come up to him, tell him what's wrong with their lives, and then he gives them money, and then they leave. <laughs> so for the people that are getting money, it sounds like the best day ever. And for him, the guy giving away the money, it sounds like the worst day ever. So it seems really lopsided porn. So it's interesting in that aspect that I get to see all these things, and it's you know it's pretty enlightening to see how they live their lives and you know the traditions and everything but the story itself is it's like a 18 19 year old woman who her sister dies during childbirth so her husband is now a widower slash single father caring for this child and they her mother decides to oh let's have the younger sister will arrange to have her married to her recently deceased sister's husband and that way the baby stays nearby and everyone's happy because the only other offer that this guy's gotten is from a woman in Belgium. So he would have to move to Belgium and she never gets to see her grandchild again. So that's the story. That's the crux of it. And what happens is, is the girl says no. And then she says yes. And then she backs out and then she says yes. And then she says no. And then she says yes again. And you just don't really care anymore. Because that's all the film is for like an hour and a half. It's just her flip-flopping. Flip-flopping. Flip-flopping She's back a and forth. Yeah. I mean, it's just her struggling with this decision, which, you know, the first or second time around, you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is gripping. It's very emotional. This is great. And then the third time around and then the fourth time around, you're just like, oh, my God, would you just fucking decide so people can move on with their lives? Because this is just getting out of control. That's out of hand, Adam. 
I, I think I have a screener for this. Do, is this one that we got a screener for, for <laughs> the Spirit Awards? It's it's weird that you say that, because I actually thought the exact same thing. But we didn't. I don't know why. Well, what did we... There unless, was... unless I lost that disc, but I thought for sure that we did get a screener for this. What? Yeah, because there was one... I'm pretty sure it was this one. There was one hmm. movie I didn't see for the Spirit Awards that, that we got a screener for. It was probably this and one. I, I'm pretty sure it was this one. I know that it was about Orthodox Jews. I know then, that for yeah. A fact. Then it was the, it was this one. But I don't know I, if there was. I like, just lost. I lost that screener because I was looking for it because like, I'm pretty sure I have this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we got we got this. So yeah, I mean the the filmmaking itself is great. Like the structure of it, the storytelling, the look of it. Um, the way that she frames her shots, everything that she does is fantastic. It's just that the story just becomes so repetitive after a while that just really hurts the film overall. I mean, you just completely lose, I mean, just interest. Anything. You're just like, oh my God, get over get over it. Just fucking move on, please. So I think, I can't quite remember, but I think it was like an hour and 45 minutes, something like that, which is entirely too long. Because mm. it's just... It, you know, it just gets stuck like the needle starts skipping on the story and it just keeps replaying and replaying. And you're just like, oh, my God, move on to something else, please. Hmm. So it's like a light, light recommend just because it's, you know, interesting to see the Orthodox Jewish traditions and everything. Fill the Void, is that, what, available on Netflix or something? Uh, I don't think so. Well, probably because I got the disc in the mail, it'll become play instant probably two days later. Oh, okay. Which always seems to happen for some reason with Netflix. I get the disc and then they make it play instant. I think they do it just to piss me off. They know. They know. I know. I know they know. And I think uh, only one other film that I watched, which this one is 168 minutes long, which I did not know going into. And that is the new film from, well, not the newest film, from Xavier Dolan, Lawrence Anyways. Because his newest one is Tom at the Farm, which I won't get to see for three years. Hmm. Yeah. So this is my first uh, venture into Xavier Dolan, who I always see is he's like listed as like a wonderkin because he's like 24 years old and he's already made like five films. Asshole. And this is a this came out earlier this year and it's a epic drama about a school teacher slash writer who just finally lets it out that he wants to be a woman he doesn't want to be a man anymore he wants to be a woman and it sort of charts his relationship with his girlfriend at the time and you know they go through the whole thing and then his relationship with his uh his parents uh his relationship at work you know how people treat him sort of goes through everything and then him and his girlfriend break up and they go their separate ways, and then they come back together. And just at 168 minutes, I like going into it. I'm like, oh shit, are you kidding me? I mean, that just seems entirely too long. And it seems like I keep doing this to myself, where I'm always watching long films for some reason. And but I have to say that this film is unbelievable, and I understand why people are making such a big deal out of Xavier Dolan because this is amazing i think it's it's gonna be at the top of my top 10 of the year it's easily one of the year's best films you sure it came out this year i'm pretty sure it did 
Because I remember that uh, I didn't get a chance to see it when we did the like the halfway list that we did. Mm. But it played like a shit ton of film festivals. Yeah, it came out in June after playing 48 different film festivals. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, on, it's played film festivals I've never even heard before. There's a lot of film festivals. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. But yeah, I, I just finished this before we started recording. It, because it felt like it took me four days to watch the thing. It was like Century of Birthing all over again. But much better. Much better than that Lob Diaz piece of shit. And it's just a... It's fantastic. The, the performances, the acting in this film is some of the best I've seen this year. Just the, the way that everything is staged, like their, their fights that they have just oh man i mean it's amazing just the performances and the camera work i highly recommend lawrence anyways cool i mean you just you got to be comfortable with watching a film about transgender people which you should be i mean it's 2013 jesus i'm comfortable with it get over it i'm comfortable with it i might check this out yeah highly recommend it cool one of the year's best easily and now i'm super excited for i was already excited for tom at the farm but I, I can't wait now. And the, the, the other thing that I want to mention is uh, Xavier Dolan's other films are all play instant right now. I Killed My Mother and Heartbeats are both on Netflix play instant. Is, is uh, Lawrence Anyways play instant? No, that is not. But again, since I just watched it, I'll send the disc back tomorrow. So I want to say around like Wednesday <laughs> it'll probably be play instant. <laughs> <laughs> And oh, the other thing about this film is it takes place in the early 90s, so you're going to love it, Adam. Just early 90s in Canada is apparently the 80s in America. Nice. So it's like like the 80s just got to them in the early 90s, and it's amazing. The, I mean, the clothes alone, the patterned shirts, are you kidding me? Yes. Oh, the jackets, shoulder pads everywhere. It's amazing. Love it. You're going to love the look of it. You're just going to lose your shit at every outfit you see. You're going to love the way you look. (laughs) I guarantee. (laughs) All right, let's talk about the Hunger Games catching fire. With us, we have Ernie Trinidad back on the show. How are you, Ernie? I am doing good, Adam. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Uh, We do have a synopsis here. Katniss Everdeen and Peter Mellark become targets of the Capitol after their victory in the 74th Hunger Games. This is directed by Francis Lawrence, stars Jennifer Lawrence, Josh Hutcherson, Liam Hemsworth, uh, Woody Harrelson, uh, Elizabeth Banks, Stanley Tucci, Donald Sutherland, a bunch of other people in there too, like Lenny Kravitz, he's back. A very brief appearance by Toby Jones. I was kind of wishing he was in it a little bit more, like his character. Right. Now, I have a review up on the site for this, so we'll start with you, Ernie. What did you think of The Hunger Games Catching Fire? Um, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, I thought the first one was a decent movie. Um, I liked it for what it was, and then uh, I ended up reading the trilogy after the fact, and um, as it turned out, Catching Fire, the novel, ended up being my favorite of the three, and so far, Catching Fire, the movie, is my favorite of, of the two. Um, I think they did a real good job of capturing what everything that went down in the book. There were so many elements. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that scene. I remember that scene and that scene, and they it all came off pretty well. 
Um, it's uh, there's a lot more characters in this one, and it isn't confusing as if it were if you were reading the book, try to keep track of who all these characters were because before you know it, they're all dead. But at least in the movie, mm-hmm. you get a general idea of who they are. Right. Uh, well, I pretty much mirror your thoughts exactly. I I read all three books before the first one came out because um, hmm. I wanted to. I just wanted to know the whole story before the first one and i was kind of lukewarm on the first one i i really had a hard time still have a hard time getting past these young adult adaptations Mm. and i had serious problems with the books like serious i I thought that the books weren't particularly well written right i I thought that a lot of the sci-fi elements were really cheesy i thought the love story was cheesy uh, mm. I thought a lot of the terminology and the names were cheesy. I just, <laughs> and, and it's really hard for me to get past that stuff in the movie. Right. But with this, with the sequel, I think that they improved on everything, every aspect of the first one they improved on. I had yeah. Yeah. serious problems with the cinematography in the first one. I didn't like how they were, they were trying to make it almost like, they, an indie like art vibe in the first one where you know they would show the scenes in district 12 and everything would be like really gritty and grainy and uh, lacked color and then right. they would use the shaky cam non-stop in the first one right and I, I i thought that the shaky cam was just unbelievable unbelievably bad in the first one mm-hmm. and i was really surprised when when francis lawrence took took this series over he completely changed the visuals yeah yeah and this one looks so much better i will say that like from a visual standpoint like all the cg looks better too now this one did have a bigger budget Mm-mm. and i think that that really shows like the city yeah, show that was a lot more clearer because the movie and even the book didn't convey uh, convey well enough that this is a program, this is an arena program, and all this stuff is not real. Like, when they're dealing with those dog things, mm-hmm. the first, like, what are these things? Where are they coming from? It's, And then it's like, oh, they're programmed. But I can't remember if that was actually shown in the movie or not. But um, here, yeah. you, the whole idea is like, okay, there are 12, 12 areas, things change as, as time goes on, and you never know what you're going to get. It's like, and mm-hmm. they did a pretty good job really capturing each, each element. And even though sometimes they don't like dwell on the elements you get you right away get a gist of just what went down and you don't need to spend so much time like with the tidal wave sequence it's like you got it i get it right cool. yeah yeah and, and i like i just like the tone of this one a lot more uh, to me in my review i compared it to empire strikes back mm. in that the first one is is like the setup we're introduced to the main characters we get a gist of how this world works how it's laid out and what the big problem is but in the first film as in the first book you don't they don't really delve into the meat of what the story's about whereas in yeah, this yeah. one in this one they they're starting to to get there they're starting to like the ideas of the whole mm. revolution are being coming to the surface yeah because you get the feeling after reading the first book and seeing the first movie you're like thinking it's like okay that was cool and all but is this going anywhere because i yeah. mean it's inescapable how everyone was kind of like saying this is so much battle royale and i i totally understand where they're coming from but they're two completely they're similar in a way but so completely different um 
But I knew going in, I was like, okay, this has got to be going somewhere. And then finally with Catching Fire, you're like, oh, so this is where it's all leading to. So, yeah. And it, needless to say, you, well, actually, you could technically just forego <laughs> Hunger Games and just go right into Catching Fire because it's almost like Catching Fire and Mockingjay is its own. Like, yeah, it, 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 yeah, it is. But it, it definitely helps to know the characters and mm. how, like, who the characters are. Right. And their personalities and why they're doing the things they're doing. And that was the one thing that I liked a lot about this one as well. The the kind of secondary characters, like Elizabeth Banks' character, Stanley Tucci, Woody Harrelson, like uh-huh. I, I thought that those characters were way more interesting to watch on screen and, and more endearing than the main characters. Uh-huh. I thought that they were all more interesting than Jennifer Lawrence and... They it just felt like in this one they had more to do, and I think that that has to do with the script. The dialogue yeah. in this one is much smarter and much mm-hmm. snappier than in the first one, and it just seems like the characters were way more fleshed out. Like Elizabeth Banks in this in this one, you could tell she she had more of a a soul. Like she wasn't yeah. just some kind of robot of the capital like she, right. you could tell that she was actually a human being mm-hmm. like she conveyed emotion in this one which i really liked and i i just i was so surprised because i'm not a huge fan of this series like i said i didn't like the books and i wasn't a real big fan of the first film right but i, I really enjoyed this movie so much that i was just i was really really surprised that i did have issues with some aspects that unfortunately were also in the book. So it's hard for me to blame the movie for them, but like it's just small things like her her um costume at the beginning where it's like the wedding dress and it turns mm-hmm. into the, the mocking jay thing. Like I just thought that that looked really bad and just kind of silly. <laughs> but I I get the sim the symbolism of it. Yeah, it was and pretty obvious. It, it worked within the story. I just didn't think. I mean, I can't remember. I can't remember all the details from the books or not. But uh, with that scene, I'm like, oh yeah, that that's the reason why the government went after uh, um, Lenny Kravitz's character. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. I'm like, I had a vague recollection that something went down, but like whether or not that's how it went out in the book, I, I'm sure it must have in some way. Yeah, but, I think um, that that's pretty much exactly what happened in the book, and. I did have some issues with some other small things like too, like the one girl that has her teeth filed and that scene when <laughs> she like hisses at her. I just thought that was so <laughs> stupid and yeah. ridiculous. But a lot of the kind of cheesy, dumb stuff wasn't in this one. I feel like the first one had a lot more kind of uh, goofy. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a lot more gravitas and weight because it's basically not celebrating and glorifying the fact that Cadmus and Pitta killed or had the hands in helping kill 22 other people, I guess, or something mm-hmm. in that effect. And it basically, it messed them up. And now, but I love the fact that, um, and I think it was in the book too, that all the other victors are, who are forced back into the Hunger Games are not happy about it. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, it's well, like, we did this for them. us. We're not most doing this for the government. We're, we're pretty much getting screwed over here. So, yeah. And, and I like I like the twists that that occur in it. I I thought that the way that they handled a lot of the twists near the end was mm-hmm. really really good. 
And for people that haven't read the book, I almost wish I didn't read the book because I knew I knew what was coming. Right. And I think that if I didn't read the book and that was like a surprise, I probably would have liked it even more. Uh, my my main problem with the with the Suzanne Collins writing style, I mean, I can't cite any examples now because I don't really remember. Is that um, she would skirt over so many things, like saying is like, and then Katniss went down. Three weeks later, while Katniss was recuperating, this this and this this went down, and it's like right. like I wanted I would have liked to have read about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like so. Um, it seems like film. I, I remember there being elements in Catching Fire that was like that. It's like, well, I can't we flesh that out a little more? That I'm thinking maybe they they filled in the gaps here and there, and I'm I'm hoping that's what they do with Mockingjay because I know there were so many plot holes in that one that ended up being my least favorite in the series. But um, at least it looks like it's really going somewhere and really draws you into make you can't wait until right. part one next year. Or so yeah, and and that that should be noted that. Francis Lawrence is doing Mockingjay Part One and Part Two, and they are taking yeah. the third book and splitting it into two two movies. I feel like they could almost have split this one into two movies, just mm. because so much happens. I mean, this movie's uh, just about two two and a half hours long, yeah, and they don't even get into the actual Hunger Games until maybe three quarters of the way in. Yeah, yeah. And so there's just a ton of stuff that happens and it never felt it didn't feel overly long to me. I wasn't bothered by the length. I I, I was like thoroughly into this world the entire time. Mm. Which mm-hmm. was kind of a surprise. Everything yeah, about was, this it, was a surprise. Yeah, it's it does go bad. It does revisit elements from the first that you'll recognize if you saw the first movie, and then it turns mm-hmm. it like when they're like uh, going to for their examinate their final interview. I guess it was called before before the Hunger Games, right? And if you remember stuff like that from the first one, things go differently here, and then the training ground is different from the first one. So, yeah, and they they even show some clips from the first one mm-hmm. in this one too. There is a lot of exposition in it. I think that yeah. it's, for the most part, it's pretty well hidden in conversations that the characters have, and it doesn't feel forced, yeah. but there is a ton of exposition going on in this one, which also oh. kind of makes it so that if you forget parts of the first one or didn't see it at all, you'll be able to catch up mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And I mean, this one to me is so much better than the first one that I would almost recommend just skipping the first one altogether. <laughs> I probably have to watch one just for context, but um, but one of the things I noted and I really liked, I can't remember if it was in the book or not, was just how how heavily they lay it on thick and how gut the government is manipulating the media. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, they're giving you what you want to see, but they're not really showing you the whole story. So right, I mean, it's right. just like when in the opening when. Peta and Katniss come out to greet the fans. They're actually just facing cameras. <laughs> yeah, I thought there's, that was there's, yeah, there's that nothing. Was there's nothing there. Like okay, <laughs> it's like that's what that's what we're coming to. So um, yeah, now. I thought that was interesting. Um, what did you think of like Philip Seymour Hoffman? He's one of the new cast members. He plays mm-hmm. Plutarch Heavensby, which is one of the worst yeah. names I've ever heard in my <laughs> life. <laughs> Yeah, so well, how did how did you how did you feel about him along with maybe some of the other new people that they brought in? Um, 
I guess when I knew Catching Fire, the book was going was gonna to be a, a, uh, made into a film, I'm like, I never really gave much thought as to who I'd want to see playing these characters. And mm-hmm. once they cast them, I'm like, oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Okay, that's cool. And I'm like trying to think, okay, which character is that? <laughs> right. And I'm thinking it's like, and then of course I'm like thinking, cool, they got him for one, but is he committed to all three? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would like, assume. Yeah, so questions like that would come up. And then... Uh, but um, there were Jenna Malone as uh, I can't remember her character's name. Um, uh, the the is that the District Seven one, the tree mm-hmm. one? Is that yeah, referring to? yeah, yeah. She mm-hmm. becomes uh, an important character. Uh, I mean, I don't know these characters well enough to know what they would are supposed to look like, but I think they did an adequate job uh, for the for the key ones. They did a decent job of getting the right people to play the parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amanda Plummer was quite good, and um, uh, was it that played Beetle? Uh, was that his name? Beetle? I'm not sure which one. There was uh, there was Finnick, which was I think he was the new the new one. He plays a pretty large role. He was mm-hmm. the one with um, yeah yeah. He was the what well, I don't remember what I don't remember what district he's from. Eleven, I think. Mm-hmm. Sam Clayfin, Clayflin is his name. He did an all right job. Yeah. Like I said, I, I to me the as far as performances go, I was more into Woody Harrelson and Elizabeth Banks yeah. and Stanley Tucci. Like I thought that they were they were the highlights. Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence as well. Definitely. Oh uh, yeah, I mean she she did a great job. Have, I mean I can't remember too much from the first, but. I, for the range of what Katniss had to go through, she did an effective job. I guess winning an Oscar helps. So. Yeah, I mean, she she did a great job. I, I like Jennifer Lawrence. I think she's great in everything she's in. But the character of Katniss, I just don't like her very mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. I just don't find her to be a very likable character. So well, You could say the same about almost everybody because they all had to kill somebody to get where they are. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Jeffrey Wright is also, he's he's the one that plays Beatty. Me, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought he was—he was good. Yeah, he—he he was good. And I, one of the other things that they that I noticed they added in this one was they added a lot more humor into the dialogue. Mm. I think that there mm. was a lot more, especially with the the stuff with Woody Harrelson and Elizabeth Banks, and just even Josh Hutcherson had a lot more uh, like comedic lines to deliver. And I think that that really that really added to the movie for me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of injecting comedy into movies yeah. like this, and it to me it just goes a really long way. Well, as long as as long as it's not forced comedy, like, and then uh, otherwise yeah, I mean, it's like, it gets the wrong it gets the wrong effect. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work. Like in Man of Steel, I didn't think any of the comedy in that worked. But hmm. what 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 comedy there was? I, just, I thought the whole movie was humorous, humorless. <laughs> there was a couple <laughs> things that they tried to add that didn't work, but um. Yeah, like I know that Kevin was not very keen on the first one either. He he had problems with like Lenny Kravitz in it, but mm. I, I told him that in this one, you know, Lenny Kravitz isn't in it that much. He only has a few lines, so people that had a problem with him in it don't yeah. need to worry. Well, it's not the greatest series of books, so I mean, it's it's just that simple, quick, mildly entertaining reads. So hopefully, the movies turn out better than so far they have. Oh yeah, I I think that probably both movies are better than the books, and they do, like you said, they do. They are really faithful to the to the book 
in this one. They mm. included almost everything that I could remember yeah, from the book. It's... Now, granted, there's a lot of stuff I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I seem to remember that they, they lingered on that cat in the beginning, the cat that was like, that uh, was like, yeah, hissing at her. Hissing at her. Like, I, for some reason, I remember they were, like, really hanging on that in the book for some reason. Hmm. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, but, I do remember the, the cat. The cat, apparently... Now I remember, for some reason, the cat doesn't like Katniss. That's uh, Crim's cat. <laughs> so, yeah. And there, there, there was a whole subplot that Crim's cat just doesn't like Katniss and throughout the series or something, no matter what Katniss does for it. Uh, yeah, so I, there's like a lot of dumb, there's a lot of dumb shit in the books that they. So I guess I guess that's a little nod to the fans who would actually remember that. I'm like, I don't know why I just remembered that, but <laughs> there it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, um, I don't, I don't really think we need to get into any kind of spoilers because I mean, there, there are some big. Well, let let's go ahead and do it. Let's just get it. Let's just do it. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and jump into some spoilers on Catching Fire right now, if. You haven't seen the movie yet, fast forward this part, we'll have the time code in the show notes. Let's talk about some spoilers for Catching Fire. Uh, the the big thing, I guess, I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say, I'm pretty sure they show it in the trailer, that Katniss obviously gets back into the games because they decide with their quarter quell, as they mm-hmm. call it, which I think is the worst, another stupid term. <laughs> Third quarter that, quell. That... Uh, they're going to reuse the tributes from mm. the previous winners and Katniss and Peta are back in it and yeah. they have to, they form allies with some of the other districts and fight against the careers as they call them. Mm. And basically as it turns out, there's, there's a big twist that there was the entire time there was a plot to, ignite a revolution within the districts in order to overthrow Donald Sutherland as the president and mm-hmm. the tyrannical government that's in place. Right. And Plutarch Heavensby, terrible name, <laughs> is kind of, he's the new game master after they killed the previous one. And he's kind of the mastermind behind all this, but you never, you don't know that until the very end when they yeah. reveal it. And he's been working with, Woody Harrelson and uh, um, Finnick and the um, the other uh, the other girl. What's her, what's her name? Joanna. Yeah, Joanna. And I think Joanna a Mason. couple of the other uh, victors are also in on it too. Right. Yeah. I, and they basically escape from the games, and mm. there's the end of the movie. It, it ends with them yeah. saying the revolution is going to begin, and it's basically it's the setup, the entire setup that you're wondering where Hunger Games is going, and this is the bulk of what the whole right, the whole mythos is supposed to be about. I suppose you could say, yeah. And uh, again, that's why that's why I compared it to Empire Strikes Back, where when you look at Empire Strikes Back, it's not a complete story. Yeah. There's no, it it doesn't end. It's just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the entire everything about that film is build up to the big climax and that's how this one is as well it it starts with them doing their victory tour and it leads up and it just is this great build-up to the beginning of this revolution i'm not going to say anything about the third book because i know that there are a lot of people that haven't read it Mm -hmm. but you can see where it's going to be 
what direction it's going to yeah. be taking for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's definitely no doubt going to be getting darker. Um, because definitely, uh, I mean, there were like maybe I just didn't remember from the book or not, but the fact that um, during the when they're on their victory tour and they go to uh, Ruse, I, I think that's what her name was, uh-huh. uh, the little girl, the little girls uh, uh-huh. uh, district, and that they were giving the uh, their little speech. The, their, their little speech, and then the the, the three fingered salute. I can't remember what district that came from. I think that came from their district. But then one of the people, the person who started off, actually gets pulled away. And I remember from the book that Katniss just watches at the book as the doors close on him, and that was it. But I can't. In this one, the guy is flat out shot. Yeah, they <laughs> shot kill him. Killed. But I don't remember if that was in the book or not. I don't think it was. I don't think that was in the book. And I remember the flogging scene from the book mm-hmm. and um, how that kind of hand out uh, it's pretty much uh, verbatim i think in the movie yeah that's exactly how it played out in the book yeah uh, but so i'm like it's definitely getting things are escalating violently and uh and and i guess even more so with uh president snow i remember in the first movie i remember them adding snow in and i remember him being barely in the movie and i knew watching it then that this must be needed to help set up the next two because right. i you knew i'd i Willing to bet that I don't think you really actually had an actual full on sit down scene with him until the beginning of Catching Fire the book. So it was. I um, don't think so, but I, th- I mean, I, th- I, I remember, right, I'm yeah. sure he was there to introduce the games and whatnot, but I don't remember them like having actually a full on scene yeah. with them, like with Katniss or anything like that. Or, ne- or you never really know who exactly this guy is. Right. But um, yeah, the I think the scene that they added in in the first one was the one where he was talking with at the end. I think yeah, he was, yeah. was he talking with um, Seneca Crane. Was that the the other game master that they ended up? Maybe killing? yeah, I think they might have been alluded to in the at the end of the first one. Again, spoiler if you've never seen the first one, where Seneca Crane ends up getting killed. So but, yeah, uh, right. I think that was only alluded to in the book. And I think that, yeah, they, they do show a lot of the beginnings of the uprisings and stuff. And, and I'm a little hazy on what happens. Like the, the second and third books, I read them back to back. So I'm kind of mixing the two of them together in my head. So I don't really mm. remember if there were things that happened in the books that were not in this movie, but it might have been like in the third book. Yeah. But the way that they portrayed the uprisings in this film, I'm pretty sure that that's pretty much exactly what happens in the second book. And yeah. Then, yeah. Uh, and then things you can tell in the movie that things are beginning to escalate. And when the third book begins, things are escalating even more. And I, I don't want to delve into that just yet. Yeah, what I'm wondering like it, is it, it did tease district 13 quite well. I don't remember how it unfolded in the book where they go through a tunnel and they're like, wait, where are we? And then they come out of the tunnel, and then they see a sign that the uh, tunnel's labeled District 13. So it's like... Yeah, that's... Ah, I think, I yeah, think that's that happens how, yeah. at the very how, end of of this movie. They say, oh, we're, we're going to go to District 13. So at this point, we can assume that there is something happening in, in District 13. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think they showed... They didn't show District 13 no, they in just, the movie. In the movie, they just go through a tunnel. And then they come out of the tunnel, and it's like, where? What was that? And then he sees the sign that said it was District Thirteen. I'm like, oh, okay. I kind of remember that uh, little nod to it in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, 
As for uh, Plutarch's uh, turn, if you read the book, obviously it's no surprise. But I think in a movie-wise, I guess they handled it well. I, mean, I think that they did a pretty good job because... Because it seemed like maybe they really it's, it's like vague as to what his plans were. Obviously, he was trying to look like he was trying to take her out. But yeah, you, I mean, you get, I the, think you get that, the sense that he had his own agenda. So yeah, you always get the sense that he has his own agenda from the very first time they meet at that party, because you can tell that he's you can tell that he's up to something, but you don't know what his motives are. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think that they even hint at the fact that he's actually a good guy. I think that they pretty much convince you that he's, he's a bad guy yeah. from the beginning. Yeah, but, but I think they might have, might have uh, played their hand just a little bit with the throwaway line where, um, when he's dancing with Katniss and they're talking about uh, the president, and then the one line he says is like, "You inspired sure me to we'll... come back." So, yeah. so I'm like, and then right off the bat, I was thinking, "Oh, okay." And he also said, I'm sure we'll meet again, too. Mm-hmm. So maybe that maybe that was a little hint at what yeah. was to come. But I think that the scene when he was with Donald Sutherland and he mentioned the plan where he's like, OK, you know, show show something good and then show the floggings and then show something yeah. and then show like the other terrible things that they planned on doing in the other districts. Mm-hmm. Like th- to me, that kind of. By that point, I think that viewers that haven't read the book would be like, man, this guy's a dick. But, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I think that all that was was interesting, and I think yeah. they handled it really well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, any other spoilers before we just jump out of this? Um, well, as far as I know, there is no added scene at the end. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't stay for the credits, so yeah. I don't know if... It uh, it ends just as it does end in the book. I guess the only spoiler would be that there is no ending. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, there is no ending. Uh, it's basically actually kind of funny. I don't know why I just thought of that. It kind of ends in a odd way to Matrix Reloaded. <laughs> yeah, you're kinda. you're on a bed on a face and uh, ends it, but doesn't end with a to be continued. But I think you got that general idea. No, no big deaths in this one either. Like no, nobody dies that is a surprise, really. I mean, like a whole mm. bunch of the the tributes die, obviously, yeah, but yeah. No, no, nobody really big. Right. Um, I guess they allude to the fact that Cinna is going to be killed, mm-hmm. but they don't outright show him dying. So right. I guess there's still hope that he's alive. Yeah. But they they've laid it so so thick that the bad guys are so bad that you just want them to die in the worst way. So hopefully they actually <laughs> deliver yes. Mockingjay because I remember with Mockingjay I thought it ended rather lacklusterly. <laughs> yeah, it, it it did, but it is a bloodbath. I will say that. I'm I'm mm-hmm. really curious to see how they're gonna get away with the PG-13 in the last because the last I was so surprised the, yeah. the last book. The last book how, was violent. <laughs> how violent they got it, with it. Violent was almost on the level of the novel Battle Royale, not the movie Battle Royale, the novel. And the novel was very violent. Yeah. So I'm I'm very curious to see how they're going to handle that. Because when you, when you read the third book and it gets into the actual revolution, and I don't think it's a huge spoiler for the third part to say that, that things come to a head. Okay. Um, it, it does get very violent but it's it's supposed to be you know it's war it's supposed to be hard and violent and dark and gritty 
And I'll be very curious to see how they handle that in the film if they want to keep the PG-13. I also think that I don't really understand why they're splitting it into two parts other than a cash grab. Uh, my, to, well, my the immediate guess would be that they consider the book too big to do in one movie. I mean, technically, book, I think it is the longest book in the series. Um, I just I feel like so much more happens in Catching Fire, though. Yeah, but I'm guessing that because they're elements that they want to flesh out in the third book, that, like I said, that Collins just kind of like skirted over. Maybe that's the reason why. Well, I, hope, I hope that is up. the case. I really yeah. do hope that's the case. But I do remember that I never saw the break Breaking Dawns, and and I was kind of like laughing at the fact that the first movie was just over two hours, <laughs> maybe like two hours fifteen minutes, and then the last movie was under two hours long with credits. I'm like, yeah, that was the Harry Potters are two and a half hours each, so <laughs> mm-hmm. that made sense. But here you made, this could have been one three hour movie. There was like, obviously that was a cash grab. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump out of spoilers. So we're back. Ernie, final thoughts on hunger games, catching fire. Um, a definite improvement over the first film, just like the second book was. Um, it'll definitely uh, whet your appetite waiting for Mockingjay, which rolls out over the next two Novembers, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, even for non-Hunger Game fans, there's a lot to like. There's decent action and uh, some interesting uh, conspiracies going on in this movie. So. Yeah. I think for people that... See, this is this is a film series that is really easily kind of poo-pooed by people, mm. but like just like me, for instance, I was initially very hesitant to even want to see this movie along mm. with the first one, like because it's just I'm not a big fan yeah. of this young adult stuff. You know, it's not yeah. it's not something that's marketed for me for my demographic. Yep. Oddly enough, though, I would say I was actually more eager to see this than I am to see Desolation of Smaug. <laughs> we'll see. That's that's the other thing. I'm oh. I haven't seen any Lord of the Rings movies. I really? saw the first one, but I fell asleep, so I don't oh. count it. Mm. And I haven't seen The Hobbit. So oh. yeah, I it's, I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I thought it was like one of the finest trilogies ever made, and I look was so looking forward to The Hobbit, and it led me down massively. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I'm that's like, what I hear. yeah, and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll see him when I see him, but uh, it, it's just not as exciting as it was. <laughs> yeah, so. and I think that this the success because this movie cleaned up at the box office, but it's also getting very high marks from critics. Too. Yeah, there was like so 80, 87 or higher. It's eighty nine right now Rotten? on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's a huge success, and it's going to make. I think I read that Lionsgate stock rose 24% because of the <laughs> reviews on this wow. one. So yeah. they have themselves a pretty big winner here. They did they did Twilight too, didn't they? Um, Lionsgate. Yeah, Twi- Twilight was done by Summit, but Lionsgate bought Summit. Lionsgate, so, yeah, yeah, Lionsgate owns Summit. Yeah, yeah so, so I think they're kind of in good shape, I guess. Yeah. All right, well, I gave... Catching Fire, eight out of ten. What are you sitting with on the on uh, this one? Yeah, that's where I'll be. Eight out of ten on this one. There you go. So, Hunger Games, Catching Fire in theaters now. Uh, that's two two solid recommends. Go go check it out. And I think that the first one is on Netflix. Instant, yep. if uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, 
I'd watch that one first and see the second one. Just know that the second one is better. That's all yeah. I say. Yeah. The second things one's will, better. Things will get better. Just give it time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that that'll wrap it up, Ernie. Thanks so much for taking some time to speak with us. You're quite welcome. Let's talk about some predictions. Last week, Hunger Games catching fire. I said 80. You said 79. Actual 89. Wow. Hunger Games catching fire. Catch it. <laughs> oh, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> Jerk. Delivery man. Dude, wait. The Hunger Games catching fire is two hours and 26 minutes long. Oh, it's a long one, buddy. Oh, fucking crud. It's a long one, buddy. A lot happens, though. A lot happens. Oh, that sounds terrible. Uh, It's not. It's... it's <laughs> It doesn't feel that long, but it depends on how into the story you are. Is Lenny Kravitz in it again? He is, but not that much. He's not in it that much, though. You don't don't need to worry about that. (laughs) He's he's only in it for like one one or two scenes, and he he has not a lot of dialogue, so. Uh, That's good. Uh, delivery man, I said 36, you said 34, actual 35. So oh, that, that's a tie. Are you kidding me? Yeah. How did we do that? It's rare that we, I don't know if we've ever tied. I don't think we prediction. have. That's I don't crazy. think that's ever happened. Uh, Philomena, I said 87, you said 82, actual 90. Wow. Philomena. Wow. Next week, we have uh, a bunch of stuff coming out because of the, the holiday. Yeah. So, so so some of these come out on the twenty uh, seventh, and then some of them come out on the 29th. Uh, we have Frozen. That's the new. Is that Pixar or is that just Disney? I think it's just Disney. I like how they just they, they don't even try with titles anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Frozen. I'm not so sure about this one. I'm this... Gonna, but but because it's Disney, I'm gonna say it's probably still gonna be favored. So. I'll say like 85. Mm, I'm going to go 81. 81 on Frozen? Yeah, I'm going to go 81. Old boy. Spike Lee's old boy. Oh my god, yes. I'm really excited about this. Now, Ernie had a chance to see this like a long time ago, but he has pretty much refused to tell me anything about it. <laughs> so, which Which is what I told him. Like when he first saw it, I was like, I'm probably going to ask you about certain things. And don't tell me anything, even if I ask. Oh, and of my. course, and of course, I have asked like several about several things. And he's he's stuck to his word that he's not going to tell. Yeah, you? he didn't. He refused to tell me everything. So that, so I thank him for that. But we do have an interview with Josh Brolin that's going to be up on the site this week too. So be sure to check that out. What do you think it on Old Boy? I'm thinking. Man, I don't even know what to think. I know. It's it's a tough one. I want to say like 72. I'm going to say 76 on Old I have, Boy. I have no interest in seeing this at I all. Do. I want to see it. I just want to see It's one of those things that I've, I'm like telling myself that it doesn't exist. I'm really interested. I, I'm, I'm hoping that I heard that the, the, the main thing and... This, the, you can hear this in the interview. Um, Josh Brolin said that the the hammer scene, mm-hmm. it's they still did it in one take, and it's a lot longer. It's like three times longer than in the original. I do like, I don't know. 
Like, you tell me all that, and all I think of is, oh, I want to watch the original Hammer scene. Like, I don't give a shit about someone redoing a scene that I've already seen before. Well, apparently they... It's not, like, shot for shot. It's not a shot for shot remake. They they have their own spin on it. I'm just hoping the end is different, because that was the thing about the original one, right? Like, that ending was so shocking, and you... I mean, at least I didn't see it coming at all. Like, I was just That's like, a, I just, I, yeah, I just have a, I don't know. I, for some reason, I just can't get over it. Like, all I think of is, oh, I'm going to watch the original Old Boy because it's already amazing. I don't want to see white people doing it. Just watch the original. I think it'll be interesting to see. And, and I like the, pretty much the whole cast. And for the most part, I like Spike Lee's stuff, so. I don't I don't necessarily like Josh Brolin. I do. I like Josh Brolin. I think I've liked him in like one film. No Country for Old Men? Yeah. And that was like iffy. I think he's pretty great. Alright. Homefront, Jason Statham, James Franco. <laughs> uh I'm gonna say I'm gonna say forty. Dick. Uh, I'm gonna go forty two. I hope it lands at 41. Yeah, Great. me too, actually. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let me see if we can get like a string of these going. Uh, Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom. We will have a review for that up the day this, that, this, that this posts. I was into this trailer until the terrible YouTube music hit. I'm not into this. Have, have, yeah, you, heard, we, have you heard the soundtrack? This? Yeah, it's, it's bad. It's fucking terrible. What are you thinking on this one? Oh, thinking like a... 54. For some reason, these biopics just never... They just never work out, do they? <laughs> they, just, they just don't they work rare, out. They rarely do. I think that this one will probably be rated higher, so I'll say 79. What did you say? 54? 54. And finally, we have The Punk Singer, which is going to be limited release, as we mentioned. Video on demand releases. Only two to note next week. We have Beyond Outrage. Yes. which I'm I'm pretty excited to see. Like, I was kind of... I remember talking about this on the show, the first one, and I think we were both kind of like, eh, you know, it was like pretty good. Yeah. If I remember correctly. But this one, the, the trailer came out for this one, and this one looks like it's definitely ramping up the the violence and the action. Yes. Looks like there's something involving a drill, so that looks pretty exciting. I'm always interested by drill play. Yeah, of course. And the other one is The Truth About Emmanuel, which I actually don't know anything about. DVD and Blu-ray releases. I only have a few to mention here. Red 2, Jobs, The Canyons, and Getaway. I I saw all of those except Getaway. And, uh, uh, you know, they're all pretty... They're all meh. Well, The Canyons is horrible. That was one of the worst movies. Maybe the worst movie I've seen all year. Red 2 was just kind of meh. Meh. And Jobs was also meh. Meh. But I know you have a a big criterion. What about The Grandmaster? Oh, I didn't know. Don't cry why. I want to see that. I I didn't see that on the list. Yeah, I want to see that too. I'll be watching that. There's also an animated film called Wolf Children. That sounds amazing. Wolf Children? Wolf children? How are you not interested by wolf children? <laughs> are you serious? That actually looks... Oh, it's from the director of Summer Wars. Hmm. 
follows a young woman who falls in love with a wolf man and gives birth to two half-human, half-wolf children. Sign me up. Sign me up. Everyone go out and buy wolf children as soon as possible. Uh, the Criterion happens to be a Zatoichi the Blind Swordsman box set, which this thing is ridiculously gorgeous and consists of 27 discs. Is that DVD or Blu-ray? It's a dual format. Oh, so it's both. Wow. It's both of them. I mean, just looking at the picture, like the actual box set itself, just the artwork yeah, that went amazing. into it. Oh, my God. It looks unbelievable. 25 Zatoichi films from 1962 to 1973. That's insanity. Get it. Get that shit. I mean, it's only $179 for 25 films. Yeah, for 25 films, that's that's not too bad. Mm-mm. I mean, just like the attention that went into the box set itself to only charge $180 for that. That's insane. Yeah, plus it's Criterion, so then, you know that there's going to be tons of special features and things like this, that. Yeah, I mean, you got documentaries, you got interviews, you got a book. It comes with a book. It's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. Cool. All right. Well, I think that that'll wrap it up. For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. Send us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name is Adam. And I'm Kevin. And we'll see you on Thursday for Ryan Watches a Movie. I've never heard of this. Or maybe I have. The truth about uh. <laughs> I want to leave that in. Ryan, we're, Please re- do. we're, we're Please recording. Do. We're Please. Reco-